Welcome to the Turkey Hunter Podcast, the original all-turkey, all-the-time podcast with your co-hosts Andy Galliano and Cameron Weddington. In our weekly podcast, we're going to bring you some wild turkey calling tips like this. From there, we're going to go into, she's aggravated, there's another hen that's challenged her, or she's challenging another hen, she's going to cut an excited yelp. Advice from old pro turkey hunters like this. The turkeys typically don't like, I think, more times than not, to travel in an easterly direction into the sun first thing in the morning, especially after he gets up. It's a blinding thing. It's just like you. It's hard for you to see into the sun. Mm -hmm. So if I have a choice, I'm going to try to make it so that I'm going to be on the west side in the morning east side in the afternoon of a turkey exciting live hunts like this teach you how to cook your bird with advice such as this with some fresh rosemary and garlic and then cool that off and spread that along the inside of that butterflied turkey breast that we've seasoned on both sides wildlife management tips for your property especially with turkeys like this if you look at the type of habitats that turkeys need for nesting and brooding that tends to be habitat that can be managed more successfully with growing season fire than with dormant season fire. And hopefully along the way, we'll get plenty of these. Well, on November the 28th of 1953, I was attached. When I popped out of my mom and the baby doctor spanked me on the bottom, I went, oh. and I've been doing it ever since. <laughs> I like that. Thank you for tuning in, and now, for this week's show. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the Turkey Hunter Podcast. You are listening to episode number 460, the history of the wild turkey, a little Thanksgiving show with Brent Rogers, and I am your co-host, and the guy who had two firsts this past week. All right. I'm your co-host and the guy who's conquered the first bird of the week. Oh, you've got you a fryer, but oh, you're making it, huh? I'd had my family Thanksgiving was tonight. Audrey's family Thanksgiving's tomorrow. So it is at least spread out over two days. That's nice. Mine's all in one day. Yeah, so we used to have that, and you know, you go eat turkey and dressing and cranberry sauce and vegetables at one house, and then leave there immediately to go eat turkey and dressing and cranberry sauce at the second house. And don't forget the vegetables at the second house. Yeah, and the vegetables. Yep. And it was just honestly was miserable because it was. I mean, I loved the meal, but it's like you know, you get to my mom's house and she's been slaving away all day and. 
you're not even hungry and like it's the same meal yeah so finally made the executive decision my family did that hey we'll celebrate the day before that way we have it spread out and that's that's worked out really nicely yeah that's cool so one one round down i only i don't know i probably went pretty light and only had like four or five thousand calories so excellent a nice light dinner yeah yeah you could have had a whole fifth of bourbon for the same (laughs) amount of calories yeah, there you go. I mean, when you think about it like that, it's only one bottle of drink. It's not that much. Yeah, and, you know, you would have probably had more fun tonight, but felt worse tomorrow than you feel tonight after eating the meal that you ate. So Yeah, I'd say that's pretty accurate. Yeah. But, yeah, so one down, cool. what, what first did you accomplish? Well, so I got my very first... First in my entire lifetime, that's a long time, by the way, a double chipmunk catch. All right. Did they get to go on a joint swimming adventure? They did. (laughs) And I'm not sure which one won because they kind of look the same, but (laughs) I'll just say the one on the left won, but they both lost. Nice. Congrats on the the double monk. Yeah, and the other first is, this might be pretty common for some of you city dwellers, but I ran over my first rat in my entire lifetime. You ran over one? Yep. Please tell me you were on your motorcycle. Oh, no, that would have been awesome. (laughs) No, I was in Tammy's four-wheeler. Nice. We were in her car, and... Headed towards downtown Birmingham and got, oh, really right at the top of the mountain before you get into town. And here comes this rat running across the road. And I I don't ever swerve to miss something because that's a recipe for disaster. So it's a rat. You know, I held my course and, well, it zigged when it should have zagged. So he ran over himself, essentially. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> now, you know, nice. I've run over mice driving down a country road before, you know, and they run across the road, but never a rat. Yeah. So. Wow. Yeah. Well, feeling pretty good about myself getting rid of some rodents, you know. Yeah, as I say, big, big rodent guy this week. You really, yeah. <laughs> really wore him out. Yes, I did. Oh, so, man. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, congrats on all that and hope you and your family have a wonderful Thanksgiving. And Thank for everybody you, listening. Happy Thanksgiving to y'all. You'll be getting this episode right here on Thanksgiving, probably. So happy Thanksgiving. If you're listening afterwards, hope it was a great time and full of good food and good family fellowship. And I second everything Cameron said. So today, though, we're going to not only eat wild turkey, but we're going to talk about wild turkey. Yes. Yes. Uh, This just seemed like the right idea. Let's talk about the history of wild turkeys and the... United States, you know, this is a time of year when everyone pretty much seems to eat a roasted wild turkey, and it's kind of the only time of the whole year when people usually do that. <laughs> so yeah, there's something there. So there's a lot of history of the wild turkey in this in, in this country, and we thought who better than to have on the Brent Rogers, who is a historian of all things and collector of all things wild turkey. So we decided to have him on to talk over that with us but before we get into the interview one quick 
announcement that we've made previous weeks. We're 90 days and eight hours away, folks. 90 days. If you're listening to this on Thanksgiving, it's 89, less than 90. 89 days. And that is the countdown to the first turkey hunt of spring 2024. And if you want to join Andy and I on that hunt, it's going to be in Texas on February 20th. Two and a half days, so we'll hunt till the 23rd and fly home. And you heard that right, February 20th. So two days after the NWTF convention ends, you could be turkey hunting with Andy and I. Mm -hmm. That's hard to believe. So if you want to participate in that, go to the show notes. There will be a link, and you click that link. goes to a page for a raffle. So enter the raffle. We're going to draw two hunters to join us on this two-and-a-half-day South Texas Rio Grande turkey hunt. Each hunter has a two-gobbler limit, and it's going to be awesome. Good food, good fellowship, good hunting. We're going to be doing that with El Mapache Blanco Ranch. And, yeah, so go enter, buy a bunch of tickets. Proceeds will go to the National Wild Turkey Federation and Turkeys for Tomorrow, assuming it's profitable. And you have much better odds of drawing this than you do any quota hunt out there, like a South Florida Osceola or Arizona Goulds. I can promise you got better shot of going hunting with Andy and I in February. So go buy you some raffle tickets. We'd greatly appreciate it. And hopefully we'll be able to make some donations to these wonderful organizations through your efforts and get to hunt with you in February, late February. Yes, indeed. You know... You keep saying that they're going to have better odds if they buy raffle tickets with us, but what if we sold 4 million raffle tickets? As soon as we hit that, I stop saying that. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll be writing a really large check to the organization. Yeah, we will. That'd be awesome. Yeah. So we assume you have better odds. I'll let you know if those odds get worse. And if, if I stop saying that, that's a great sign that a good donation's coming. So <laughs> yeah, no uh, doubt. It's good stuff. But it's going to be a fun time. Wanted to let y'all know. So go to the show notes, click the link, or you can go to my Instagram, Cameron Weddington and click the link on there. It's in my bio, and that will take you to the page to enter the raffle. If you have any troubles, please let us know. You can email Andy at Andy at IamTurkeyHunting.com if you have any troubles, or message me on Instagram or whatever, and we'll get you set up. So look forward to seeing who all applies, and can't wait to hunt with two of you guys. Absolutely. I second everything he said. Well, what, what do you do say? You let's hop in here and talk to Brent Rogers about the history yeah. of the wild turkey. Let's do it, man. All right. See you guys on the other side. Hey, everybody. Cameron and I are excited to tell you that we have on the show with us today our good friend and, man, just everything wild turkey, friend of the show. Jeez, what what historian, collector, uh, what are some, oh, hunter, I can't can't leave that out. Brent, you know, I have to throw that in there. But we have Brent Rogers on the line with us today, and we're just going to be talking about probably a lot of what I just mentioned. But Brent, you've been on the show a few times over the years, and 
if I'm not mistaken, you are one of the very first people who ever reached out to me when I started this show many moons ago. So I have to ask the question first, before I even ask how you're doing, I have to ask the question, what's wrong with you? My my wife has been trying to diagnose it for years. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I hope nobody finds the cure. <laughs> Well, you know, the whole infatuation with turkeys, I get. But listening to this show for almost 10 years, God bless you and thank you. That's all I can say, buddy. Well, let, let me just say free. It has been good. No, it's I, I got to say, I mean, you, you all have done a good job of bringing a variety of content. And some of the guests you have are fantastic. I mean, I look at myself as just one of you guys, just somebody that enjoys it all. And I mean, you, you way oversold me. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just ate up with it like you guys. And uh, that's what makes this fun. I think uh, we just have a deeper appreciation than the hunting. The hunting is something we love. Um, Got to have it. Wouldn't, wouldn't have the passion without it, but we can go well beyond that too. Very true. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to put it. I, I almost feel like, you know, when I think of turkey historians, in my mind, Jim Cassida and then Brent Rogers comes to mind. So I definitely think as kind of the keepers of and collectors of turkey literature and the history of turkey hunting, I feel like you and Jim Cassida have got the market cornered, man. Well, <laughs> I mean, I, he, he he owns it. I'm, I'm a squatter. I, I, I talk to Jim and usually... Yeah, usually when I talk to Jim, I come away feeling like a rookie, you know, because because <laughs> he just has lived it. And that's why I say he has lived it. And and I'm just, you know, kind of peeking around the corners. And my passion has taken me a ways in terms of being able to learn a thing or two. But I, I certainly don't have command of it like like Jim does. Yeah, he, he is a walking encyclopedia. And yeah. mm -hmm. You know, just a, a great guy to boot, you know, so just just a pleasure to have a conversation with. And, you know, I think Cameron and I have had him on the show only once, but that was enjoyable for me. Jim probably can't say the same, but it was enjoyable for me. <laughs> you know, Jim, Jim is real. And that's that's one of the things yes. that I like about him. And he, he's doing the forward for me for the book I'm writing now. And oh, awesome. that was one of my most anxious moments was sending him the manuscript thinking, Oh my, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm sending, I'm saying, and yeah, he, he had some criticisms and they were valid and it'll be better because of it. That's, that's the way to approach it. You know, he, that's what he offers. He's, he's really amazing. Well, yeah. So tell us, tell us a little bit about that, if you will. I mean, you don't have to go into detail on your book, but you've mentioned it. I don't know anything about it other than you have written one. And, I mean, do you want to offer any details about that and when it would well, be available for people? Sure. Uh, it comes with a box of crayons. Sweet. <laughs> I'll get I want to pre-order mine then. So yeah, yeah. And, and so it, it's really... So it, it does have a history vibe to it. So in my day job, I work in the food R&D world, almost 30 years doing that. And so I'm a, you know, I like innovation. I like, you know, to, to see how people really seize opportunity. You know, they identify a, a need and they go after it. And the story I'm telling is really, 
I would I would call it an entrepreneurial innovation story around how the restoration of the wild turkey started a you know production turkey called boom and and you know it made made men and and it it uh it created incredible calls and history and and so it's really that story kind of celebrating how that all happened wow that that sounds awesome so and this are you do you know when you plan to have it finished by well <laughs> i was supposed to have everything turned in in about a week if i want to make the book available at convention in february national turkey federation convention that's still my plan It'll just be a trade edition. I've considered a, lim- a limited edition in the future where I would match a call to it and, and have some extra, you know, content. And But for now, um, it'll be a, call it like a little bit of a coffee table book. It'll have a lot of text, of course, but it's also got a lot of pictures and focuses on several individuals and several companies and has some backstory and and uh, I know the folks that that have been helping with it have been amazing, some some super super people. So yeah, hopefully uh, it'll make convention, and that'll be a fun fun time to share that with everybody. Wow, I will definitely be looking forward to hearing and seeing that once it's available and getting one for my bookshelf. Yes, well, me thank as you. well. Yeah, and I will say to give you another plug real quick on books. I was sitting here looking. I'm out in my shrine to all things wild turkey, which includes a large bookshelf full of books and calls and collectibles. And there's a book that you and George Dinka Jr. did together on turkey. So the title of it is Turkey Call and Literature Collector's Guide. So for any listeners who have ever looked at a turkey call or a book and thought, man, I wonder what that is worth you know what what should i actually spend to buy this that's your book turkey call and literature collector's guide it has got all the information you need for collecting calls and books i use mine all the time when i'm looking at buying a new book specifically i'm mostly into books right now and i'll get in here and it's sorted by author and you can just go in here and get the average price that it usually sells for so you can see if you're getting a good deal getting ripped off or if you're paying adequate. So I will say it's been a huge help to me. So I appreciate this book, Brent, that I bought from you. And uh, you, you put a nice inscription on the inside for me. But I've, mine's going to be worn out after a few more years, I'm confident, because I use it all the time. Yeah, you know, I, I again, I'm a bit nerdish. So I, I've i got, you know, so many searches set up, hundreds of searches on eBay with multiple accounts. And I watch other auction sites and and, you know, I, there's a few private sales I can track or things like that, but I spend a fair amount of time just entering data. And and my contribution to the book was was more literature. George has done a, a lot of work on the call side. I've got my own data, I would say, on that and and uh, continue to compile that. But but it was a pleasure to, to do that with him. I'm really grateful he gave me the opportunity to expand the literature and and, uh, you know, the goal of it was just to help people, one, identify what's out there. Yeah. Number two, give them an idea about, you know, what what am I going to have to spend to get it? And average price is just that. I mean, it's an average price that, you know, uh, something that's X library and marked up and missing a dust jacket or something that that's probably low when it comes to the yeah. average price. A mint, con- mint condition signed 
is could be double the average price, right? I mean, it just depends. So, but at least it gives people a reference point. Yes, uh, I mean it's so helpful because, like, you know, there's so many books out there, and without some resource such as this, you see a book and you're like, man, I want that. It's signed. You know, looks like it's in good condition. But I have, you know, you have no idea what it's worth. You know, and some of them are old books and you think, man, this thing's got to be worth a ton of money, but you know, it had a ton of printings and it's really not. But then other ones are worth a ton. Like, you know, if you, if you find Jack Dudley's book signed and in great condition, which mm-hmm. I think most of them are signed, it's worth some good money. Yeah. <laughs> sure is. And hard to find. Yeah. But yeah. anyway, yeah. just wanted to give you a plug there. It's a great resource. You, Brent, you may not want to know this, but I have programmed your name and telephone number into my wife's cell phone so that when something happens to me, she can call you and say, hey, I got all this turkey crap around here. I need to get rid of it. And Andy said to call you. So I figure if anybody can help her price any of this stuff out, you're the man. Probably accurate. Well, yeah, it just she she's going to be surprised when I tell her what it's worth versus what you told her you paid for it, though. <laughs> well, you know, that's the, I'll be gone, so it won't matter. Yeah, but, I guess that's true. She can't kill you again. That's very true. Very true. But that's awesome. Yeah, I, she'll I be really surprised to hear, you know, that it's all worth ten dollars and I paid you know, <laughs> however many hundreds of thousands for it. <laughs> I have helped people do that before. I've even gone to people's houses and, you know, tried to look through and, and help. And, yeah, it's 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 fun to help people. That's that's part of it, too. So, yeah. Well, we all know we have Thanksgiving coming up this Thursday. And hopefully everybody's celebrating and enjoying and talking about what they're thankful for. And I know the three of us on the show are thankful that the wild turkey is in North America and we get to hunt him and that under our current structure, we have plentiful land to hunt him on. So we thought who better to have on the show to talk about the history of the wild turkey in North America than Brent Rogers. So that's why you're here, Brent. So tell us the entire history of the turkey. Start with day one. (laughs) When was the first one hatched? Oh <laughs> and which what what came first, the hen or the egg? Yeah, you're breaking up on me. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of what I figured. Well, so I assume here's a question: if if I'm a I'm a Christian believer, and so I believe in creation, do you believe the turkey was? created on the day of land animals or the day of the birds it says flying birds of the air yeah well i mean a turkey's not a bird of the air in my opinion it is a bird so i mean it's it's uh it's terrestrial in a sense right so i guess that'd be my answer but all right andy you on uh land animal day or birds of the air day well well if i'm hunting with you it's birds of the air. <laughs> Otherwise, they are an animal. <laughs> All right, fair. Yes. Fair Where answer. do you stand on this, Cameron? I believe it was. It I believe it was on. I think it was the sixth day. 
when the creatures that move along the ground were created. Not the fifth day with every winged bird, which it does have wings, but I, I would assume it would be on the you know day that the creatures who are on the ground. That's my answer. So sounds like we're in agreement there. All right. Well, well we've settled it, it then. It's like, it, you know, it, 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 this is a good example of most of what we'll talk about is, you know, it, there there's so much we don't know. The best we can sometimes do is fabricate what we think we know <laughs> yeah. based on what facts there are. And, and that's okay because it does make it fun. It just means at some point that that's the nature of history is. History is not all fact. History is a lot of interpretation. That is true. That's very true. So historically, I guess, we know the turkey, the wild turkey, has been here for a long, long time. And I guess were the first written accounts of wild turkeys in North America from early explorers? Would that be our first written accounts of wild turkeys? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there, you know... When Columbus uh, landed, um, I'm trying to remember what island it was on, was it uh, wasn't Haiti? I mean, at, at some point, the the, uh, the one of the guys with him wrote something about it, and and, the, and people have been trying to figure out is what they saw turkeys, and wouldn't have been turkeys there unless they'd been taken there by somebody. But certainly the Spanish, when they got to Mexico, mm-hmm. I would say are, are the first validated accounts, right? So that was in the early 1500s, call it like whatever it was, 15, it was before 1520. Wow. When you think about, that's a, that's a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. That's a long, well, yeah. so you, you blow mine out of the water. I tried to research it myself for this. The first account I found was from LaSalle, who was a French explorer, and he found turkeys in the Mississippi River Valley. So, yeah, actually, that, kind of, that was 1687. Yes, exactly. So it led me to research LaSalle. And so he found the Mississippi River and they I think they kind of like explored it big time, found turkeys. They wrote of plenty of wild turkeys and they used them to ease their sufferings. You know, so they're they were using them for food a lot. And then I researched LaSalle actually a little bit and it's. He was French. He's the one who kind of claimed the whole river basin for France and named it Louisiana. So the whole thing was Louisiana at the time. And then he actually tried to return, apparently, years later, and they couldn't find it. So they didn't have Onyx, apparently, and missed and landed in Texas. And anyway, struggled so bad to find it that his crew finally got hacked off and just killed him. So anyway... That's what that was the earliest account I could find was 1687. But you're saying there's accounts in Mexico from 15 something. Yeah, it was 1519. That's what I want to say. And and essentially, it was some of the folks that were you know it was the conquistadors, and then they took turkeys with them back to Spain in 1524. And huh. and of course, there's records then in Europe as well about turkeys arriving and. And, uh, you know, they, at that point, they, they were called all kinds of things. Uh, you know, there's a lot of there's even a lot of debate about why they're called turkeys. Certainly nothing's <laughs> clear about that. <laughs> what what reasons are there given as to why they're called turkeys? Do you know? 
So if you go back to the account where, and I can't remember if it's a cleric or a priest or who is it that's with Columbus, but apparently he wrote something that the turkeys made a tucky tucky noise. And that was one account. And then another account was that merchants that got a hold of the turkey and began to propagate it and sell it around Europe were Turkish and it was mm. called turkeys. Another another account was it was called turkey because it got mixed up with the guinea fowl, which was already known in Europe, had been brought from Africa and was being sold as a turkey. And and, and we know that <laughs> because before turkeys were taken to Europe, they were talking about turkeys and they had turkeys were on family crests. And it was because that they were mixed up with, I mean, well, they were calling the guinea fowl that. So it's a very complicated, a very complicated uh, set of facts, and nobody's probably uh, ever going to know for sure. So we don't. So there's many options as to why the turkey got its name, and who knows which one's correct, if any. Yeah, and there's 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 all there's additional <laughs> theories out there. Yeah, absolutely. I I seem to remember one book I read. I think it was Edward McElhaney's book. It said something about the Indians called them furkies, like with an F. I can't remember which one it was. It's something like that, but I've read some stuff on that where even just the name Turkey has a lot of debate, I guess, amongst those who care about it, I guess. <laughs> um, oh, it does. It does. Yeah, I, I'm trying to remember what book it's in that I've got that um, is probably it's probably the shorter book. Uh, it's it's kind of neat. It's got a list of all the different Indian names for the wild turkey in North America. It's a oh, sizable cool. list, and and it's kind of neat just to see you know what that phraseology was. Yeah, yeah. It's you know and the Indians. There's a lot of writing. I feel like with turkeys and turkey hunters who kind of look at history and stuff that Indians overlap in there. You know the Native Americans, and I know. So if you go online, you can find what's called the AUK, A-U-K, and it's uh, Early Records of the Wild Turkey. I know you're aware of that, but for listeners who want to see, like, really early writings about wild turkeys, just look up the AUK, A-U-K, and Wild Turkey, and you'll find them there. You can download them online and read them. It's pretty interesting. But, you know, one of the ones in there is from 1810 in Ohio and Kentucky, where they're talking about how the Indians, if they were scattered, they would actually imitate turkeys to gather back together. And I thought that was yeah. pretty interesting. So, or, or at night, they would do wolf sounds. Like, they would howl like wolves, I guess. But um, in the daytime, they would make turkey sounds. And you read a lot of Indian stuff. It sounds like they knew how to imitate turkey sounds with their natural voice, like, like perfectly, among other animals. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's... There's uh, several accounts of that where, you know, you look at the what what Hazen Wright did in the Ock, and then Shorger pulls some of that into his book. There's even other accounts. I mean, I, I actually, as I read some of those, I went and, and bought the original sources just to read the whole book. In fact, the book that I just got done reading recently is one of those quoted in there. I'm, I'm holding it. It's, it's called A Hunter's Narrative. And it's mm. by a guy named John Hunter, and it was written in 1823. It's super interesting. When I got it, it, it wasn't at all what I thought it was going to be. 
um, subtitle, Manners and Customs of Several Indian Tribes Located West of the Mississippi. Essentially, as a child, he gets captured by Indians. His family gets killed, um, and it's the Kickapoo tribe that captures him, and he lives with them uh, for quite a long time. And, and he moves all around across what would be Missouri and Arkansas, and I think even some into Kansas, maybe. And anyway, it's it's the story just about you know how how he was living with the Indians, and and he talks about how they hunted turkeys. So they would they would basically cape a turkey, cut the head off, and cape it. So they had the head and the cape, and they would gobble to call turkeys in. Oh my gosh! So probably probably would shock some people to hear that, but it's it's i've I've seen it mentioned in three different books and i went back and found the original (laughs) wow so they would they would like dress literally in a cape with the fan like i guess they're basically reaping them and goblins (laughs) well no it'd be it'd be like they'd be hiding behind logs you know and Uh, okay you know using it that way where they would they'd be concealing themselves from the turkey and only showing I mean, it'd be, I would say it'd be more akin to using a decoy now. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And keep in mind, they're using bows that they themselves made, and, you know, the turkey right. would need to be yeah. very close. We're in Mossy Oak Bottom Land. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, I, mean, yeah. I mean, you got to think, you know, the Indian, the Native Americans were were really... I would say quite innovative themselves in terms of both their hunting methods and tools. They, they pretty, pretty amazing. I, I mean, and, and it was for survival. It wasn't for sport. So, you know, people would say, well, there's accounts where they shot him out of a tree or, or, you know, they set grass on fire or whatever. I mean, or they baited them or whatever. But I mean, I, I gotta say if, if I'm, living on the land and trying to survive killing the turkey and eating it's my goal <laughs> we're, we're exactly. men and women today right so it's different rules and different uh ways that we do it yeah if killing the animal means you eat that night compared to going hungry by all means kill and eat like <laughs> yeah, there's a big difference yeah i mean there's yeah and there's accounts you know, from the the East Coast and even even in Michigan, that it was settlers that learned to build turkey traps from the Native Americans. In fact, if you go to the there, there's a Native American heritage site, and it was just Native American whatever na- National Week here just recently, yeah. and uh, they've got a wild turkey page where they talk about the different ways they hunted and trapped and shot turkeys. It's kind of interesting. Hmm. That's yeah. That's so it's not cool. my words, right? That that's the point. Is people can castigate and say, "Oh, you're just you're just promoting myth." Or no, I mean, I, I I'm reading firsthand accounts and I'm talking to people that <laughs> that that it's their culture and tradition. Yeah. Wow. That I'll have to check that out. That's a cool cool thing. I have not heard about that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can shoot you a link. Yeah. Please do. I've said it numerous times on this show, and I still feel the same way today. To all of those out there listening who call themselves turkey hunting purists, you know, I'm only going to shoot male turkeys. I'm only going to shoot them at 20 yards or less. I'm only doing this. I'm only doing that. You know, I'm doing it this way. 
insinuating the whole time that their way is better than any other way. They're not a turkey purist until they go out, cut their own tree limb, get their own deer sinew to make a bowstring, get their own branches to make arrows, nap their own broadheads or arrowheads, and make their own turkey calls, go out in a loincloth and some berries crushed and rubbed on them, and start hunting turkeys that way. So (laughs) until they do that, their way is no different than the guy who buys a $4,000 shotgun, has a thousand acres of private ground that he takes one bird off of a year, doing it in a Mercedes Benz side by side and shooting TSS and killing them at 54 steps with an electric electronic collar, as long as that's legal. So anyway, that's, you know, we are wondering, Andy just described himself. He has a Mercedes Benz side by side and he heads out. That's that's how I pictured it. (laughs) Well, here's what I got to say though. My, my, my thought is don't turn it into a trophy sport, right? I mean, you know, the, the, the great thing about turkey hunting is it's not a trophy sport. I mean, I, I just cringe when it gets to like, I'm passing on the bird because of the spurs. That That's where I draw the line. <laughs> yeah. yeah uh, that's something that draws me to turkey hunting that, you know, like deer hunting has become this thing where, you know, you shoot a, 130 inch eight point and you know you should have let him walk and hopefully got him in seven more years when he's a monster like that's what i love about turkey hunting a long beard's a long beard you shoot him and you walk up there and you don't know whether you just killed a five-year-old turkey or a two-year-old till you can check his spurs i love that so so i i will say i'm still on the quest for the 60 pound turkey and if you if you go back to that oct journal there's a great entry oh yeah and and i yeah, it, you, did you read that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, the auk and several of the early written books, you know, you have records of these turkeys where they claim the size of them, and you're like, I mean, I don't know if that's accurate. Like, <laughs> people people were yeah. embellishing stories long before we came along and could tell our stories. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, we didn't invent that. So, Andy, I mean, to your point, you know, I mean, it's, you know, we're, we're, sometimes we're pursuing a myth, whether it's our perfect way to hunt or it's actually <laughs> what, what we're hunting is a myth, right? The, the, there never was a 60-pound turkey, but but hey, it's written down. So does that make it true? It just it's just funny how that's what I said. It's it, it's interpretive, right? It's yeah. <laughs> yep. Oh, and there was there's the part two where it says uh, um, the guy was this guy's trying to basically raise turkeys by taking wild turkey eggs hatching them under a hen and what he was told this i mean this is again this is back in the 1700s what he was told is just before the egg hatches you have to dip it in a bowl of warm milk and then the turkey will be tame (laughs) what in the world (laughs) oh me well somebody's still laughing about that one oh yeah i mean you know it's it's kind of like what Tony McClebb's secret in the old pro turkey hunter. There's so many things like that yeah. where uh, the people <laughs> right. give just ridiculous advice and then probably laugh their way all the way home, hoping the person tries it. Yeah, the thing the thing to do with history is look for consistency and look for reputable sources and 
You know, I mean, if you can start to see patterns, you can see through the bull. And again, you don't see a whole lot of accounts that of 60 pound turkeys, but what you do see a lot of is a lot of accounts of hundreds of turkeys. It's amazing when you go back and read read those awk entries by Albert Hazen Wright, how many chronicles there are in settlers' journals and military journals and everything else where they were seeing hundreds of turkeys at a time. Yes, huge flocks. I mean, they you know it's estimated, and I don't remember who did the estimating. I mean, Dr. James Earl Kinnemar could Kinnemar could tell you, but. Um, you know, the estimates are there were 10 million turkeys here when wow. when the, you know, basically the pilgrims arrived. And, and we, we have around 6 million now. So 10 million then is pretty amazing to behold. And there there's, you know, I, I know there's been discussion both in books and other things I've seen where they're, they're just like uh, there's a debate about how many Native Americans were there. Um, it's there, there's some people that believe there were a lot more Native Americans than people realized, realized, but disease, you know, went through pretty fast and really lowered the population of, of those folks as well as it probably did with uh, wild turkeys from domestic turkeys. You could, could have been not all even hunting, right? There's just a lot of different ways that could have happened, but clearly there were a lot more turkeys <laughs> per square foot of where they lived then than there are now yeah there were only yeah. turkeys in 39 states so we we've moved them from 39 to 49 that's one thing we did um although right. so you know, which, funny in hawaii <laughs> yeah which 10 hawaii obviously which other nine states did not have turkeys nevada california uh nevada Probably Washington and Oregon would have been right there. I mean, it was a lot of the Pacific Northwest right. and some of that yeah. southeastern part. In fact, if you go back and look at the Lewis and Clark journals, you'll see they ate a whole lot of everything except for turkeys. They only ate nine turkeys on the whole journey because most of where they were didn't have turkeys then. Wow. And, and now a lot of those places have a lot of turkeys. That is that's fascinating. So they ate nine turkeys on their whole journey. Yep, at least nine that were. That's all that were recorded, and 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 I believe that number because they were very diligent about recording those kind of things. Yeah, that's so interesting. How I mean, their expedition specifically, like they literally thought they were going to find like dinosaurs and woolly mammoths. Like once they <laughs> went out, well, they didn't know. I mean, Thomas Jefferson certainly. I mean, there there were people that that thought that there would be live mammoths that they would find. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, you yeah. don't know. Like, can you imagine literally yes. not knowing what you're about to go into? You have no idea. Well, the grizzly bear sure made an impression on him. It probably should have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that it did. Yeah, and it's interesting. Well, so, so that another point is Lewis and Clark expedition. When I first read on uh, Undaunted Courage the first time. I was going, how can this be? They're going through, they're going up the Missouri River uh, between Iowa and and uh, Nebraska, and, and they're talking about seeing grizzly bear and elk and antelope and all this other stuff. Well, that, that you know, we, we in this country at that point had a, basically an American savanna. I mean, that's what that was. The, the Great Plains is where all the animals were. And it was only as 
they got pushed into the remote corners of the mountains that they became species that live where they do now. Uh, you uh, know, that, that's, that's, that's the difference. Wow. That's, that's interesting to think about. Yeah. And just to think, you know, there's a lot of places I see in my travels and stuff, especially like larger cities and stuff that are usually built in some of the most fertile, beautiful areas of the, of the state. And I'll look from a high vantage point and just think like, man, I wonder what this looked like before all this was here. You know, it's just so interesting to consider that. And I, I, I can't imagine how plentiful the game species were before industrialization and everything took place. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and, but, and there's a quote that I, a quote that I really like, I mean, I don't know what it is about us and, and I almost think every hunter can be guilty of this at one time. I think I was in my youth when I I was I had the bloodlust and the quote is and I, I I don't know who actually wrote the quote but it says uh, um, that we there there is a savage lust for slaughter in apparently kind folks <laughs> and and what the what the quote goes back to is an account of a wild turkey slaughter in Indiana. Uh, sometime in the late 1800s, and it was attributed to be when wild turkeys got wiped out in that state. So it's an account of, and I, I found it in the Aldo Leopold papers as I was researching Aldo Leopold. And basically, it just says that, you know, the people from the town got together because the turkeys, they, they were blaming the turkeys for eating all their crops. And so they went out and, and they basically did a turkey drive. They drove them all and they got a whole bunch of game that they pushed into a circle and just shot it all. Yeah. And, and this guy that wrote it was a kid back then. And he, he says, and, and now I'm looking at the paper. He says, I vividly remember my joy and exultation on the roar of that wild fusillade and my sympathy for the slaughtered birds. So, yeah, wow. I mean, that that's... that's the balance we have is the thrill of the kill balanced with the cost of the kill. Yeah. Yeah. So let's move forward, I guess, you know, we've been through settlers and the Indians and, you know, Ben Franklin was kind of the next point I wanted to make who wanted the wild Turkey to be our national bird. Thank the Lord. He didn't get that pass because bald Eagle hunting probably wouldn't be nearly as intense, but well, you, in the awk. Do, do you know? Do you, do you know the real story behind that? Because there, there's a lot of mythology in that. Really? Okay. Well, I was going to quote what I found in the awk by uh, Jared Sparks, the works of Benjamin Franklin. But let's hear the the real truth. Tell it yeah. to us. Well, so so I mean, this was after the eagle was already chosen, and and Ben Franklin was was just waxing eloquent that that he didn't think the eagle was was a good choice because the eagle was a scavenger and yeah and so he, he looked at it from the perspective that you know we have this proud native bird right that that is something that that we just have here and it and, and it's you know a symbol of of strength and and uh, and so he was he was basically just you know talking it out <laughs> The fact that it's the eagle, but it should have been something like the turkey, and and actually he never really did advocate for it, but because it was captured the way it was, I think people have gone to interpreting that that 
he was actually yeah. pushing for it to be turkey. Yeah, so a couple quotes from Ben Franklin about the eagle. And if you're a huge bald eagle fan, sorry, but he wasn't. He called it a, a bird of bad moral character. He does not get his living honestly. He is too lazy to fish for himself, watches the fishing hawk, and when that diligent bird is taken length to catch a fish, the bald eagle pursues him and takes it from it. He's never in good case. So he, he calls the bald eagle generally poor and very lousy. He's a rank coward. <laughs> He's very, very uh, negative on the bald eagle. And he talks about king birds that aren't bigger than a sparrow attacking him and, and being able to beat up bald eagles. And so he says he's by no means a proper emblem for the brave and honest Americas. So then he goes on and says, America looks more like a turkey. because the, the turkey's a much more respectable bird, true native of America. And he calls the turkey a bird of courage, which is the title of one of my favorite yeah. books, Bird of Courage. Yeah, yeah. And says he would not hesitate to attack a grenadier of the British guards who should presume to invade his farmyard with a red coat on. So Franklin, obviously, very much so was not pleased with the eagle and (laughs) definitely like turkeys. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, I, and I mean, I'm a, I'm a passionate pheasant hunter. And and I, I still rib my, my pheasant hunting buddies, though, that, you know, pheasants are Chinese and turkeys are American. So <laughs> yeah. if I'm going to give my money to something, I'm giving it to the turkey. Yeah. Now, you make a good – I mean, it is true. The, the wild turkey is, for our country, it is a native bird, very proud bird. It, it honestly would have made a lot of sense. I'm really glad they didn't choose that because I enjoyed hunting them, but – would have made a lot of sense. Indeed. Yeah. So I guess let's move up to more modern times. So the turkey was plentiful, flourishing everywhere in this country. What happened, in your opinion? So seems like market hunting, turkey traps. I mean, it seems like human interference was the main culprit. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. I mean, we brought modern weapon, modern weaponry uh, to hunt them with we we cut down the trees they lived in i mean you know you look at what the native forests used to look like in this country and the ship mass they used to build out of the 250 you know foot pines or whatever on the on the east coast i mean there were it was it was amazing what kind of timber there was in this country and i don't think we'll ever see that again because there just there just isn't a place for it to happen but yeah, the, the loss of habitat, the human encroachment, the hunting, all, all of it just combines for a perfect storm. Yeah, and so the wild turkey is effectively wiped off the map in most of its native range. With what few. What was the low? What was the estimated low population of wild turkeys around it, that it's time? Between thirty thousand. Yeah. It's between 30,000 and 200,000 um, in terms of the high and low end of the estimates. Nationwide, yeah. That's crazy. Good. It is. Gosh. I mean, from it, 10 million. It's, it's, yeah, from 10 million. I mean, it's the story of the buffalo, right? It's it's the same wow. thing. It just, it, it's going from feast to famine. And uh, yeah, we're very fortunate we, we didn't totally lose them. Yeah. Isn't I mean, that the truth? can't imagine especially the low end of that range if that's accurate 
you know, that that's just yeah, hard to fathom out. across and, and the entire nation. The, the reason, I think, for the 200,000 estimate is because they're more unsure what populations there were in places like Colorado, New Mexico, or Texas, where, I mean, I, I collect old hunting magazines, and I've got stacks and stacks of old magazines I've bought just for the turkey articles in them. And a lot of a lot of the uh, journals from uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, a lot of people were going to Texas to shoot deer and turkeys. A lot of people, and and so there there was a very healthy population there. And I think that's where some of it gets called into question: is how low did it get in some of those places versus we know, basically from the Missouri River all the way east, <laughs> there weren't many there weren't many anywhere in there. Wow. Yeah. So what's the time frame we're looking at? About when did the turkeys hit rock bottom? Like what decade would that have been? 1920. 1920s. And so wild turkeys are at their worst. And when did the first, like, I guess was McElhaney's book, is that the first one that was written? Yeah. That was like... Yeah, 1914. Yeah. And so he wrote that. So I, I'm kind of thinking like the first original books would be McElhaney's Hunting the Wild Turkey, uh, The Great American Tom Wild Turkey. Was second. Do what? Yeah, Tom Turpin, Tom Turpin was second in 24. Uh, Simon yeah. Everett was third in 28. Um, and then you had Davis in 49. And so, so that, those early books, like, I mean, those were in the worst times. I mean, you can kind of read yeah. in there it seems like those authors are almost pleading with whoever will read their book to save the bird. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's why Turkey hunters became the eccentrics, right? That That's the part of history where Turkey hunters become the secret society of, of whisperers. And, you know, because we're hunting something that almost doesn't exist and we're not willing to tell anybody a truth about it because we may not hear a goblin Turkey that year. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's just hard to imagine. And the turkeys that were left were in very remote, you know, massive forested areas, essentially, where people couldn't get to them. Well, yes, and that contributed to a lot of the, the I think, early misinterpretation that turkeys were big forest critters, right? Yeah. I mean, a lot, yeah. a lot of the early man plans it was like well, we got to put turkeys into blocks of ten thousand acres not yeah and it's not because that's what it took to survive it's that's what it took to survive when they had every gun pointed at them <laughs> yeah yeah i mean you read or, or listen to some of the people that were involved in reintroduction phases and like they didn't think north missouri could like there was no way turkeys could survive in north missouri it's too many fields you know right and Meanwhile, they flourished, you know, or Iowa, even like anywhere out there, like there'd be, there's, there's too many cornfields. Turkeys can't make it up here. Well, I've, I've got a book called A Country So Full of Game, and it's a book that was written about the history of the wild turkey in Iowa. And in fact, the guy that wrote it, his son just wrote a follow-up to it. And, and I'm going to be sending those to get signed by both of those guys. But it's interesting because in, in a country so full of game, Dinsmore, who's the author, goes back just like Albert Hazen Wright did to all the original journals of the, you know, he he went back and, and has French sources. And he's got a lot of the early military expeditions. And what he does is he shows Iowa 
was full of game. I mean, there were buffalo, you know, deer, elk, bear, turkeys all over the place, grouse. And and we we here in Iowa at that time, it was oak savanna. So it was, again, it was savanna uh, sparsely populated with oaks, pretty darn good turkey habitat. And uh, it still is good turkey habitat, but it does take the trees. So we're not quite as uh, sparse on trees as, as a little further west. But, you know, the, the formula for turkeys isn't as complicated as kind of the ability to manage all the things they need. Yeah, yeah. That's So we wiped them out in the 20s. You have some early literature coming out from people talking about turkey hunting. When did, like it seemed like public interest in turkey hunting really spike, I guess, prior to like what got people motivated enough to want to start trapping them and, and doing restoration projects for turkeys. When, when about did that start and why? Well, it was in the 1930s. And, and, and if you look, you look at the, the basically just conservation history and you can see it was 1900 when, uh, when we passed the, um, Oh gosh, I'm, I'm dropping the, the name of it now. The, it basically bans uh, interstate uh, transport of animals, and 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 uh, so what happened is conservationists began to raise the flag. There there was actually uh, a guy named Frank Forrester. Have you ever heard of him? No, I have not. So so he was he was around the mid 1800s, but what he wrote influenced the people in the early 1900s where he, he came over from England and he began to carve out the first outdoor writer career in the U.S. and yeah. and basically started giving a voice to early American sportsmen. Um, and, and where he started was like sports tabloid writing. And, and then somebody suggested, you know, you've got some outdoor background. Why do you write about that? And and so he started to get people interested, and then he began to advocate for seasons and game laws, and conservation groups picked that up. And then you had folks like, you know, Teddy Roosevelt and others that that were seeing the need to do this. And it, it just became kind of a national movement uh, because enough influential people got involved. Some of them were writers, some of them were politicians, some of them were, you know, just, just private folks, academics. Aldo Leopold was huge in that. So... I think it was in 1933 or so when he came out with his, you know, game management uh, book. And uh, folks like that, Herbert Stoddard, um, they were the ones that really influenced. They they were the thought leaders in the space. And at the same time, I think states realized these things were resources. And, And the states began to work on this, you know, even well before trap and transfer was possible. That there were there were turkeys being transported, you know, decades before that. I mean, there's records of turkeys being trapped and released in the early 1900s. There was also a lot of domestic turkeys being or yeah. captive turkeys being released. And and Leopold was really that's what his mission was was to get that shut down. Have you ever heard of the um, the Woodmont Rod and Gun Club? No, have you? I haven't. So another good book on that. So um, Henry Bridges, who was actually the first one to patent a mouth diaphragm, uh, is the is the guy that was really big at this uh, Woodmont Rod and Gun Club. It was at the I want to say it was at the intersection of was it West Virginia and Maryland, and 
really good habitat for turkeys, but basically they formed a club. Over time, several presidents and Babe Ruth hunted there, but they basically game game farm turkeys. And and they would they would raise thousands of turkeys and release them and then hunt these, and I'm doing air quotes, wild turkeys. And one one of the guys in the club, I read an article that that Leopold was just going nuts over, where where this 74 year old guy says, "I've killed over 1,200 turkeys." <laughs> wow, <laughs> wild turkeys, right? And 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 th- they even had a formula at Woodmont to tell you what a wild turkey was, and it was all about the characteristics of the color of the feathers, and, and you know, and and a few behavioral things, but anyway, I mean, I admire them for their passion. I I do. I admire them for the passion. They they were just misguided, right? The answer was not game farm turkeys. And between the thirties and fifties, that's what happened is this conservation movement debunked it. And by the 1950s, when they had the first wild turkey symposium, you had a lot of those folks, Mosby and Bailey and all those that were in a room together and Lovett Williams, I think, was even there as a young man. And, and and they basically said, we've got two sets of data, one from turkeys that we have farmed and released, and one set of data from turkeys that that we have captured and released. The first set of data, we don't have any alive, we don't have any turkeys to show for it. And the second one, they're multiplying like crazy. Mm. I mean, that's one of those things, you, you know, you don't know if you don't try. So... You know, here they were trying to bring back this bird, whether it was for reasons of profit or for reasons of love of the bird. And so, you know, you do what you think will work and do that until you're proven that it doesn't work. So, absolutely. I mean, that's 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 the process of learning. Yeah. And, And there's a lot of, you know, I mean, you look at the Cameron, the question you asked was what what really got people back into wanting to hunt turkeys well certainly after world war ii when when we had people coming back from you know horrible horrible uh, war circumstances they needed rest and relaxation <laughs> and hunting and fishing was a great leisure pursuit and and there was a definite you know that by that time we had roads that were being built to provide access, right, interstates all across the country. People had, we had automobiles, so they had a way to get there. Um, we had a, you know, post-war, uh, there was a job boom, so people, we created a middle class with income. I mean, everything in the 40s and 50s set it up to where we we had the people that wanted to do it. We just needed to make it possible. Yeah, well, that's, that's fascinating. I mean, so in your opinion, because you hear people sometimes say that our turkeys today are half-bred, you know, type, partially domesticated. They're they're not the original wild strain of turkeys. Do you buy into that at all? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, it's it's almost the same as the buffalo, right? So, I mean, you, you can, it's interesting how few, call them purebred buffalo there actually are because Again, it got down to I want to say it got what wasn't it under a hundred or something? It was ridiculous, and yeah. and you know people were trying to breed them with cattle and everything else, and 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 with turkeys, it's no different. I mean, you know people people were purposely breeding them. There there was incidental breeding happening, it appears, and 
and uh, a lot of the releases that got done. Um, and then they later released wild turkeys that at some point, yeah, it's there, there's probably, and, and I, I, I listen to the biologists that know a heck of a lot more about it than I do. And, and they'll say that all the different, you know, aberrations um, and you look at the different phases of, of turkeys and, and that's just proof positive that, that, that there's still a lot of those domestic genes uh, from those turkeys that, that still express themselves at some point. Mm. So were the original turkeys mossy-headed turkeys? <laughs> hey, get David Hawley on. He, uh, he, I remember he <laughs> talked about that one time. I, I just, I just smile because again, it's, to me, it's the same thing as the 60 pound turkey. Everybody thinks they saw one, but there's no proof. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel like all the, older books have a reference to that mossy headed gobbler or whatever, you know, the, <laughs> the original well, strain. And I'm, not, I'm, and I'm not jabbing David because I think his point was, I mean, the, the bottom line is there's probably a basis of fact in it, right? I mean, there's, there's no doubt that there's probably a turkey or turkeys or whatever it was that, I mean, there, there are still, strange things happen with turkeys you know you see a couple that get feathers growing out of their head if you've ever seen those pictures of of some of those things but you know the one thing that's clear to me is that the the turkeys that were here were still big compared to what the europeans were used to they they were very clearly every account you see we're saying the turkeys here so much bigger than the ones we're used to and and so like the smaller breed of a of another thing doesn't make sense to me because it, turkeys interbreed. You know, if 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 there was a smaller strain of turkey somewhere, it, w- it would shell out pretty quick because turkeys interbreed. Yeah. Okay. So. Yeah, and we all know that dwarfism exists. Period. In in all species. So yeah. when you kill a 14, 15 pound, smaller frame, body size turkey, long bearded turkey, you know, I mean, who's to say it's not of a different strain, a pure strain, and who's to say it's not a dwarf, but I'm going to say if it was of a pure strain, it wouldn't be just one. You'd have a lot more of them around, I would think, but what do I know? Yeah, yeah. All I know is I would... I wish I, that we had a different uh, genetic aberration around here than than we do. I've shot two spurless gobblers here locally, and I and I've called two in for other people that were spurless. I said, "Why couldn't it be a multiple spurred <laughs> yeah. variant instead of a no spur?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That I've killed. I've seen. I've killed one, and my brother killed a gobbler. Mine was an Eastern here that literally probably did not weigh 12 pounds, full long beard, and had yeah. legs that were half the length of a normal gobbler. Like, he just was tiny. He looked like a chicken. And then my brother killed one in, it was actually a Merriam's that was very similar. I actually had, the day before, it had walked up to me in tall grass, and it was so small that I looked at it and thought, Oh, it's a hen. And then it saw me and ran off, and I saw its beard, and I was like, oh, my gosh, that was a gobbler. And we went back the next oh, day and, and killed it, and it literally was like 10 pounds. I mean, that that's like what Andy, you're saying, though. I mean, you know that 
almost kind of a dwarfism example. Yeah. Yeah, I think they just were, you know, they're short people, they're smaller deer, they're smaller. I mean, you know, it's just part of it. <laughs> yeah. If God made us all the same, this world would be a boring place, wouldn't it? That is a fact. Indeed. That is a fact. So the turkey comes back basically solely through trap and transfer, and people started caring, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> and so when yeah. were the first official turkey seasons kind of brought back? Or, or were there states that never stopped turkey hunting? Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure there were. And there there were states that, and, and I wrote an article about this that was in Gamekeepers a year or two ago, I mean, there there were spring turkey seasons even back in the 1800s. That a lot of the southern states had turkey seasons that went into May uh, in some places, and and even some of the ones that went into February would have been during the gobbling season. <laughs> and and so, like Charles Jordan, he hunted spring turkeys. That's that's what he loved, and and he made no bones about it. But but fall hunting was very traditional. And there's, I mean, there's, you look at that, there's even Native Americans that hunted turkeys with dogs. I mean, every piece of turkey hunting tradition has a root going way back. But I mean, a lot of states um, put seasons back in. Uh, they started kind of in the 60s. And then by the 70s, there was a, a fair number. And that's what really, again, like this book I'm writing, by the 1970s, you had enough states with turkey seasons that all of a sudden everybody needed everything. Everybody needed clothes and specialized guns and calls, and they needed books and magazines and things to learn about it. And it's amazing how many jobs that created. Yeah, that's interesting. Create a whole industry in and of itself. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's something that you know, a lot of us just overlook and we just say, well, this is the way it is. It's the way it's been as long as I've known it. And, you know, here we are. But no, definitely not. <laughs> that was not the case. You know, there were not thousands, tens of thousands of turkey calls being made in China and shipped over here in the 1920s. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. So, so. Cameron specifically, I don't have a full list. I've been just jotting them down as I get them. I've got a spreadsheet. I keep stuff, but you know, like Michigan opened the season in 65, uh, Utah opened one in 67, Vermont 73, Iowa 74. No, Iowa was 73 and Kansas was 74. But I mean, the 60s and 70s, the point is that's when things were that's really getting rolling. Back. And were most of those yep. fall seasons at first? Uh, no, uh, most, I mean, at that, some of them were like New York, their first fall season was a year before their first spring season, they opened back up. So some of the states, um, were kind of playing with that, but I mean, spring turkey hunting was, was much more, um, how things kind of got back started up. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's stayed the same. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So, and what was the last? What was the last state to open turkey hunting back up? Ooh, that's a good one. Come on, Brent. Hmm. I, I know. I know Canada, Ontario was eighty-seven, but I don't remember. I don't remember in the U.S. which one. I mean, I'd be tempted to say Nevada or somewhere out west. Yeah, but, that was my thought. But I, I don't know. Yeah. 
I'd be willing to wager it was Nevada. That's just my guess, but who knows? I've just got to say I'm impressed that Cameron found a question that he could stump you with. Got him. Good night, guys. Enjoyed well, it. <laughs> it's been a great show. Yeah. You're, <laughs> you're assuming anything I've answered has been truthful or right. So that, oh, no, no, again, no. I that doesn't my, matter. It's I just gave my disclaimer at the beginning. <laughs> History is interpretive. <laughs> yeah. Brent's just answering confidently with no knowledge at all of any of these answers. I got, oh, I'm shaking my <laughs> Uh, that's funny. So spring turkey hunting comes back, comes back in force. And I'm guessing this is where your book that you're saying you've written kind of picks up like the turkey hunting industry all of a sudden booms. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there were in the in the 70s and 80s, you know, just look at the number of companies, whether it's it's uh, camo companies or turkey call companies and you know, gun and and uh, accessories. Um, wow, just a- ammo. The the all the innovations that happened over that were were. I mean, it was just an explosion. It didn't just trickle. It just exploded. Yeah. Oh, and books and you know, I guess you had at first it was like the records, then you know, tape recorders and then CDs. Like you just had a progression of just a glut of information of people who I feel like mostly came out of the Southeast a lot of, and then several from maybe like New York, Pennsylvania area. Yeah. Yep. I feel like those kind of were the hot spots of the turkey hunting knowledge that started to come out early on. Yep. So yeah, basically then that brings us to today. So you, you go through, turkeys expanded 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 it seemed like i mean what would you say was peak restoration success years like the early 2000s and late 90s well i mean you you asked me the question i couldn't answer and i still can it's which state opened last and that's going to bug me until i i'm gonna after we get off the phone i'm gonna find it but but i can tell you what year it was The, the, the year was 91 and i know that because you, you, you had the NWTF's Target 2000 program, and, and that began in the 80s, and, and you know, they, they were coming behind the states that were already doing this work and the biologists that were doing it, and, and, and all that together. It was 1991 is what I remember. 49 states had turkey seasons. Wow. And, you know, so so that that's pretty recent. And, and yeah, that was, I, I would say it's, it's kind of was the peak, too, because at that point, you know, I won't say everybody said mission accomplished, but yet the research dollars went down, trap and transfer went down, and, you know, a lot of things that had been happening for three decades kind of just stopped. And turkey, you know, when when they first opened turkey seasons in most of the states, they offered a very minimum amount of tags. And and they really monitored that. They some of it was very regional, kind of like what Tennessee's going back to, which makes sense to me. Which is, it's hard to manage even a whole state the same way because the whole state's not the same. And that's not the yeah. way they did turkey seasons when they started. Well, what happened over time is we just got comfortable with the fact that there's a lot of turkeys, so we 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 commoditized them, <laughs> and they became, you know, the state that I live in, Iowa. Um, we have some excellent people in our game department, but they have no money. Our state is terrible at funding them, and turkeys and deer pay for a lot. And and it's uh, 
when you monetize your wildlife that way, it can have diminishing returns. Uh, fortunately, we still have a great population here. We got a lot of good things going for us. Although yesterday, a friend of mine sent me a video uh, from 40 minutes east of me, and uh, it's a wild turkey hen. He basically gets out of the truck and just walks up to her. She's clearly in distress, and I, I'm almost positive she has LPDV. Um, I sent Michael Chamberlain the video. I haven't heard back yet, but what what happens is they get tumors on their internal organs and and they basically you know starve. Um, they just die, and, and clearly she's got something like that. So um, you know I sent legs in for testing um, for a few years when the DNR was doing that, and samples were coming back positive uh, from this county that I'm in, and uh, so I mean. We created a lot of turkeys. A lot of turkeys create their own problems, right? You, you have you have people that monetize them, and and they become a commodity. You have disease that can happen. You you start to change habitat, or 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 other species, uh, raccoons and coyotes and bobcats learn they're good to eat and begin to prey on them, and and, and all things that can happen happen. And over time, things aren't stable anymore. So that's what we have to do now: is we have to figure out you know, is there a new normal or do we just have to have constant vigilance? Yeah. Yeah. Cause in my mind, if we could, if everything's stabilized to right now, this level we have currently with small fluctuations, we're good for a long time. You know, if it just would stay here, the, the question is, is, this, is it going to get worse? Is this downward trend going to continue? But right now it's not bad, you know, comparatively to where we've been in the past. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, we're starting from uh, a source of strength. Is the is you're exactly right, and we've got again people rattling the bell. So thanks to you know turkeys for tomorrow and the NWTF, who I see are both stepping up, and and uh, you know private companies like Mossy Oak doing the turkey stamp. I mean, th- there are people that are you know calling the alarm, and ma- now what we hope is that we get ahead of it. Yeah, absolutely, because, you know, this, if we just stabilize or get back to growing populations, that'd be great. We don't, we don't want to be the ones in history who took them down again. (laughs) I don't want to be, but anyway, so I don't know. I feel like that was a pretty good synopsis of the wild turkey from Columbus to modern age through now. And, you know, are, are there any other interesting historical facts that, listeners who want to sound like a know-it-all at Thanksgiving can share about the wild turkey that you could impart on them? Uh, I always, I find it interesting. So, you know, turkeys got domesticated at least twice because we know that they they were domesticated in Mexico when the Spanish arrived. Um, But a lot, some people don't know that the species of turkeys that they got domesticated from there is no longer in existence. So huh. there's been a lot of research looking at the genetics of those turkeys in Mexico that you know, basically a domestic turkey was from a species that is uh, Meliagris galapavo galapavo. And huh. that species is now extinct, I mean, in the wild. And, and so to me, what's interesting is, you know, the Aztecs were, were raising domestic turkeys to a huge degree. In fact, it, it will say that 
the Aztecs and Mayans, both in that area, you know, had had their commerce at some point was even based on turkeys. And that the Aztec emperor uh, would feed 500 turkeys a day to his wild raptor flock. Wow. <laughs> and so, I mean, the facts are interesting because there were a heck of a lot of domestic turkeys then. But look at the cost. It wiped out the entire wild species. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, do you think those were like eastern wild turkey like looking turkeys or do you think they're more like the oscillated type looking ones? That they were definitely more like the eastern because that's that's the variety that's, you know, you look at a domestic turkey and and we raised turkeys when I was a kid. We had what were called bronze turkeys, which look exactly mm-hmm. like a wild turkey in terms of coloration and and that's how I got. I mean, you know, just listening to those turkeys and we had some we kept for pets. Actually, we did keep one of the gobblers and uh, he got so big. We weighed him once and he weighed 57 pounds. So there's your, so there's your 60 turkey. pound turkey. Yep. Yeah, you almost did it. Pound turkey. The guy that shot a 60 pound turkey probably shot a domestic one. But anyway. Um, Maybe he shot yours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of the oscillated, though, that's interesting, too. So the Yucatan Peninsula, Yucatan, I want to say, actually translates to the land of the deer and the turkey. <laughs> huh. That is interesting. Uh, I've been interested, you know, because a lot of the, I feel like a lot of the first turkey sightings were in Mexico, I guess. So I've been interested to know if that was, you know, what I think of as a turkey or if it was more of the oscillated species. But it sounds like it's more of what we we think yeah. of as turkeys. Yep. Yes, for sure. Yeah. And, and, and again, because the domestic turkey, you know, in its form resembles exactly more the what I would call the the other four subspecies we have versus their or five even versus the oscillated. Yeah, That's that cool. is interesting. Yeah. So give us one more wild turkey fact that I can bring up while I'm carving up my turkey on Thanksgiving. That's just gonna make everyone think I'm the most knowledgeable turkey guy on earth. <laughs> what What are the stones in the gizzard called? Called gizzard stones. So you got they have me. Gastro gastroliths. Oh. So you know some people collect the gizzard stones because they're they are pretty cool. They're they're called gastroliths. Gastroliths. Liths. Yeah, yeah. Gastro L I T H S. Yep. Gastroliths. And All essentially, right. what those what what those are are turkey teeth. Yes. Huh. Yeah. So turkeys do have teeth. They're just in their gizzard. <laughs> Yeah, and they they get them off railroads and gravel roads and streams. <laughs> yep. So there you go. So I'm looking at a jar that's about one third full of gastroliths right now. It's a very large jar, but it's got gastroliths from probably 30 states in it. <laughs> yeah, that's, I wish I'd have done that. That's really a neat idea. Yeah, yeah, it actually is. That's become one of my favorite things with turkeys that I harvest is getting the gizzard out and when i get home like breaking it open and seeing you know sometimes you can tell like okay i killed him right beside a gravel road that had all white gravel in it i wonder what's going to be in here but the ones you kind of kill deep in the forest or somewhere you're like i bet these are gonna be cool you know there's no telling what's in here and then you got hawaii you got lava rocks in there and i mean it's just pretty cool it 
definitely gives you like a little bit of sense of region for each turkey if you get your gastroliths out of them. And it's Absolutely. never too late to start, Brent. Yeah, that is right. And for the other two people that are still listening, don't forget that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is a fact. Oh, uh, yeah. When you say still listening, those were the only ones that ever queued it up to listen to it. So Yeah, they started with us. So. <laughs> I mean, we'd normally have three, but you're on here with us. So we know that you <laughs> yeah, probably yeah, won't listen right. to yourself. You provide a service to us. You really do just by just by helping to kind of stoke the passion. There's there's always something great on every episode. So hopefully this will be no different. Yeah, uh, normally it's me, that. but this time it'll be you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Andy's full of himself since he got a deeper voice last week. but That's right. I'm still hanging on to it, though. <laughs> oh, my. Oh, yeah. Uh, Brent, thank you. I appreciate it. And I, I truly do view you as a historian of the grand bird himself. So thank you for imparting some of the vast knowledge that you have on wild turkeys with us and giving us a background of, of the bird that we all kind of celebrate this Thanksgiving. So thank you. All right. Yes. Happy Thanksgiving, gentlemen. Happy Thanksgiving yeah, happy to you, Thanksgiving too, buddy. To you. Look forward to seeing you in Unicoi yep. in, what, about five weeks, six weeks? Yes, sir. Looking forward to it. That's going to be great. All right. Well, you have a wonderful holiday season, and we'll see you then. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, Brent. Goodbye. Uh, I feel like McKay. Yeah. Yeah, my, <laughs> my brain's exploding for sure. He that is was... one of the nicest dudes, like, on the face of the earth. Yeah, no doubt, and very knowledgeable through literature of wild turkeys and it is you know it's just you pick up little nuggets of information you never knew and so that that's pretty cool so now i you know i like to know more about turkeys than than i did yesterday and now i do yeah yeah awesome awesome interview i hope you guys who enjoyed that will make sure to stay up on and get you a copy of brent's book when that launches Sounds like it might be available at the convention in February. That would be fantastic and, if it is. Yes, yeah, so make sure y'all stay up on that. And I do, again, highly recommend getting his literature. He did the literature part, but that call and literature guide that I mentioned during the interview, very useful if you're buying any older collectible turkey calls or literature surrounding wild turkeys. I promise you'll use it. So make sure you go pick one of those up. You can message Brent and get one of those on Facebook if you need to. Yeah, definitely do that. We appreciate you guys supporting the people who support this show, whether that's, you know, spending some advertising dollars with us or coming on and sharing their knowledge with us and and volunteering their time. And we get reports back from a lot of the people we have on the show thanking us for giving them the opportunity to come on and talk to you guys because you are buying what it is that they're selling, whether it's books or it's calls or hunts or what have you. You guys are very supportive of the people that come on the show. We're we're very thankful for that. So, you know, that's a good way to probably wrap up the show. I just told them something i'm thankful for i'm waiting on you cameron 
Yeah, well, I'm I'm thankful for all of y'all listening, for the kind messages we get, and for those who, when we ask for favor of the week or ask for suggestions on guests who reach out and do that. And I'm thankful for those who've bought some raffle tickets so far. We really appreciate that, too. Yes, indeed. You know, so, we, we often say that this is your show, you the listeners. This is your show. Without you, there would be no turkey hunter podcast and so we both appreciate you very much absolutely well there you go how about favor of the week it's thanksgiving go tell somebody that you're thankful for them easy all right well you want to wrap it up this week do it all right thank you guys so much for tuning in this week we know that you have choices we appreciate you spending your time with us we hope you have a wonderful week and lots of good food for Thanksgiving. And we look forward to seeing you again next week. Goodbye. Thank you, guys. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the Turkey Hunter podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please go on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. And make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe for free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews to help you have a more successful turkey season. And stay tuned for upcoming episodes on hunting afternoon birds, how to film your hunt, and the breeding cycle of hens, as well as some guest interviews. Thanks again for listening. We know your time is valuable, and we appreciate you sharing some of it with us. See you next week.